Welcome back, friends, as we study, continue our study in 1 Corinthians. Today, we will pick up uh, chapter 8, verse 1. And Paul is going to be talking about what seems like a rather specific topic related to his very specific age, uh, the topic of eating meat that has been offered to idols. Uh, But even though that's the specific topic that Paul is addressing, he's going to lay before us a basic Christian principle for uh, making decisions, for making ethical decisions, for determining what is right or wrong for us to do. Uh, let me set the context for the text, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. In the Greco-Roman world, the Gentile world of Paul's day, first century Mediterranean world, uh, the cities of any size would have uh, perhaps a number of pagan temples, temples to pagan gods, uh, like in the Roman pantheon of, of Jupiter or Venus or the Greek pantheon of, of uh, Athena or Aphrodite. These pagan temples would serve various functions in the ancient world. Um, They would be places where people go to worship these pagan gods. They would also be places of social gatherings. Uh, After uh, food or meat was offered to pagan gods uh, in the form of a burnt sacrifice or a sacrifice, uh, the priest of the temple would get a certain percentage of the food, and then uh, the rest of the food could be eaten by the participants. So in a sense, this was one of the ways you could find a first century restaurant um, in these temples. Eating the food that's been offered to idols is, is like a barbecue after the uh, worship of the idols occurred. And sometimes uh, all the food, all the meat wouldn't have been cooked in the sacrifice. So these temples almost could function as a um, butcher shop. This would be the place to get the meat. Meat was not a very common part of the diet in the first century. So uh, it was almost a rare occasion or occurrence. And uh, oftentimes, the only time you'd get to eat meat would be in social settings such as this. So the the question arose quickly um, when when Christians started spreading the faith and uh, Gentiles from this world started embracing faith in Christ as to whether or not a Christian could eat meat offered to idols. Well, obviously, a Christian cannot worship an idol. Does that mean a Christian cannot eat meat that at some point had been used in idol worship? Uh, That's the question. That's the question that's been presented to Paul uh, by the church in Corinth. And he's answering that question. Uh, Let me give you the short answer so that you maybe understand Paul's reasoning here in chapter 8. The short answer is this. Yes, as a Christian, you can eat that meat. Um, if, if, if for you, it's not a participation in idol worship. If for you, you have decided, determined that it, it, it's not harming your life in Christ, you have the right to eat that meat. Um, if for you, it's not participating in, in, in bad behavior, you know, perhaps you purchase the meat and you eat it a week later at home. Uh, if, if you have determined in your own heart, mind, and conscience that this is okay because you have the freedom in Christ to do that, Paul would, put a, would agree with you at that. Paul was going to say that we're not made righteous by what we eat or by what we don't eat. 
by what we drink or by what we don't drink. Now, in the Jewish world, they kept kosher. What they eat was very important to them, um, and I think it should be. Uh, God gave them that commandment. God gave them the kosher laws to help keep them separate from other peoples. Uh, but when Gentiles came to the faith, Paul was very clear that Gentiles did not have to accept that part of being Jewish in order to accept, accept the Jewish Messiah, uh, Jesus. Uh, they didn't have to accept that. They had to accept Jew Jewish morality. They had to accept uh, Jewish theology concerning the one God. They had to accept Jewish concepts of the Messiah. Uh, so in a lot of ways, Christianity is a new way of being Jewish. That's exactly what Paul would have seen it to be. But in this new way of being Jewish, kosher laws really did not have uh, any play. So you have the liberty in Christ to eat this meat. Uh, you're not defiled, as Jesus says in Mark's gospel, you're not defiled by what goes in your body. Uh, you're defiled by what comes out of your heart. That's what defiles you. So he's going to say that you do have the right in Christ, the spiritual liberty and freedom in Christ, uh, to get the good deals on the meat and not have to research the whole history of that meat and that animal before you decide to eat it. You have the right to do that, and that would not necessarily harm your spiritual life. So, let's look at the text now, knowing that context. Evidently, Paul is, talking to, is answering the question from some Christians who know this. They have the knowledge or the enlightenment that uh, what they eat doesn't determine the, the richness of their spirituality. But is just knowing the right thing all that's necessary um, for you to decide to do it or not? Hear what Paul says here. Let's go to the text. Chapter 8, verse 1. Paul says, Now concerning food offered to idols. That's obviously the presenting question from the church of Corinth. He says, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge. Um, he, he's quoting something that the Corinthians have said to him. That's probably a Corinthian proverb, all of us possess knowledge. Uh, then he goes on, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Paul, uh, more than once in 1 Corinthians, will attack human arrogance will uh, caution us against allowing what we know, our enlightenment, to puff us up or to make us arrogant. And that's why he says this knowledge puffs up, can make us arrogant, but love builds up. We have to always bring our knowledge to the service of love. Remember, 1 Corinthians is where we find that remarkable chapter, chapter 13, that remarkable hymn from Paul, um, that hymn in praise of love. So Paul is saying here that your gifts, your grace, uh, your rights, your liberty in Christ has to be lived out in a spirit of love. If you don't add the love to your knowledge, it will just make you arrogant. Verse 2, he says, If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. He's reminding us none of us are as smart as we think we are. Verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God, Paul says, or he's recognized by God, or, or God knows those who belong to him. So Paul's just saying, you know, what we know might be really good, but what God knows is more important. God knows our heart. God knows who belongs to him. So it's this knowledge of God that saves us more than our knowledge. Verse 4, therefore... 
As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, and here's another quotation probably from the Corinthians, an idol has no real existence. That's what the people in Corinth are saying who are eating the meat offered to idols, that um, idols have no real existence, and that, and here's another quotation, there is no God but one. Uh, Let me continue, then I'll say a word about this. He goes on and says, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods, in quotation marks, and many lords, in quotation marks, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things and through whom we exist. That almost sounds like a creedal statement there. Paul is quoting uh, the Shema, uh, which is sort of the creedal statement of Israel uh, from Deuteronomy 6, Shema Israel. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So he's affirming that, that we are monotheistic, just as the Jewish uh, faith is monotheistic. We believe there is only one God. There's not a pantheon of gods out there. There's not a multiplicity of gods. There's only one God. So if you think you're worshiping some other god, there is only one God. So uh, you're not worshiping a god. You may be worshiping something else. And as a matter of fact, in chapter 10, he's going to say, if if your false god has any power, it's demonic power. Uh, There are no other gods in the world. Uh, so he's, he's saying, he's acknowledging, he's agreeing with them. Yes, we do believe that idols have no real existence. Um, they're just stone and wood, as the prophet Isaiah reminds us. And that there is only one God, the true God. Uh, so he's saying that um, this is our core conviction. There's one God and one Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that. So there, you know, when you offer uh, uh, food to Jupiter, there is no such thing as a Jupiter God. So nothing in reality, at least at that level, is happening. He's acknowledging that. So again, does that mean, because idols have no existence in reality, does that mean meat offered to them is, is good or bad? Well, he's saying that that doesn't necessarily determine the case. So let's pick up now in verse 7. He's going to talk specifically here in verse 7 and following about this issue of meat and whether or not you should eat this meat offered to idols. Notice what he says. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Some of the new Christians there in Corinth, uh, fresh in the faith, uh, fresh out of the world of idolatry, the pagan world, uh, they still believe that idols to some extent have an existence. So uh, they probably in their own mind had completely distanced themselves in any form or fashion from idol worship or anything relating to idol worship, including eating meat that had been offered to idols. So they don't do it and because they, 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 they in their own mind and heart think if they do eat that meat, no matter how far removed from the actual use of it in the temple, that it somehow will defile them. So Paul is going to raise the issue of what he calls these weak brothers and sisters who, um, you know, they haven't developed their conscience to the point yet of, of, of not being able to eat the meat and not somehow feel an association with idolatry. Uh, verse 9, Food will not commend us to God, 
We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Again, we know that's the reality. We're not made righteous by what we eat. We're not made sinful by what we eat or drink. Uh, We know that. We know that. Um, Verse 9, notice what he says. Verse 9, but take care that this right of yours, and it is your right, Uh, you in your own mind, uh, might have decided you can get the good deals on the meat there in Corinth. You can join in your neighbor's barbecue and enjoy the meat. And you don't have to, because of some association with idols at some point in that meat's history, feel bad. You may have already made that decision. But he, he, he's saying that you need to be careful to take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So it may be your right in your own heart and mind. It, it's not something that's wrong to do. And you have every right in Christ, in your liberty in Christ to do it. Does that mean you should do it? It may be your right to do it. It may not be wrong. Should you do it? Notice why he says as you continue uh, here in verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, the sense where the party's happening, will he not be encouraged? So if someone watches you do something, even though it's your right to do it, even though you decided it doesn't harm your Christian witness or Christian walk, but if someone sees you doing it, um, might you not be encouraging them? They might misinterpret what you're doing. Might you not encourage them somehow to do something that you wouldn't want to encourage them to do? And if their conscience is weak, you might be doing that. Verse 11, and so by your knowledge, by your theologizing, by your working it out in your own heart and soul and spirit, by your own enlightenment, by your own exercise of your rights, this weak person is destroyed, Paul says the brother for whom Christ died. So that is the way he wants you to look at these other people in your life. These are brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. Verse 12, Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Again, we're not just hurting our brothers and sisters. We're hurting Christ when we hurt our brothers and sisters. When we love our brothers and sisters, we are loving Christ. Then he makes a remarkable statement in verse 13. Uh, And you have to work on this. You have to continue to pray through this uh, because this is a rather radical statement. Uh, I think he's using a little exaggeration or hyperbole here to make a point. Notice what he says in verse 13. But I, I understand what he's saying. Notice what he says. Therefore, if food makes my brother or sister stumble, I will never eat meat. I'll become a vegetarian, Paul says, lest I make my brother or sister stumble. So Paul is giving us a principle here uh, in this um, rather esoteric, uh, anachronistic discussion of can we eat meat offered to idols. He's giving us a principle about how we should live and act ethically. Uh, He's saying that it's not just is it right or wrong. You might have decided in your mind and heart through your study of Scripture, through your walk with the Lord, that it's not a wrong thing for you to do. But you have to ask the the next question. Would my doing this 
harm my brother or sister in Christ. Paul would say, and you have to decide where, you, where the limit is on this, but Paul would say, if it means I need to be a vegetarian, I'll be a vegetarian before I hurt my brother or sister in Christ. Now, I eat meat, and I'm sure that I know that there, is, there are some Christians out there who have made the decision not to eat meat. Uh, there have been whole Christian movements before that have not been uh, meat eaters because they think it's somehow harming creation. It's somehow bringing pain to part of God's creation. I understand that. Um, but most of the time, they, don't, they, don't, they try to not condemn us for eating meat. Uh, we always have to factor in our brothers and our sisters when we're making our decisions. It's not just, is this my right? Uh, it's not just, is this something that is right or wrong? I have to factor in love. Let me give you an example. Um, maybe a couple examples. And all these examples will, will break down at some point. This is where we have to have the mind of Christ. We have to be prayed up. We have to stay close to Christ. We have to take it situation by situation. But Paul is exactly right. Loving our neighbor has to be a premium in our life. And that has to come, come, into, come to bear on what we decide to do. I don't think that as a Christian, you have to be a teetotaler in regards to alcohol. Um, Christians throughout our history have participated in drinking alcohol. Christians throughout the world have, been, uh, have, have participated in drinking alcohol. The Jewish faith has always been, been very much participating in the drinking of alcohol. Um, the faith has always said drunkenness is sinful. The faith has always said that we should always do everything in moderation. Uh, temperance is not just to be something in regards to alcohol. It should be a way of life. We should be temperate about all of life. Um, we should um, not be obsessive or gluttonous about anything. So uh, I think that's the biblical view, and it's certainly the worldwide historic view of Judaism Christianity concerning alcohol. Um, so it's nothing wrong with, with having a drink um, of the fruit of the vine occasionally or uh, other alcoholic beverages. I, I don't think that will condemn a, a soul to have that. Now, that's not the only question, though, before me. If me taking a drink in a certain place around certain people will harm my witness or somehow give them the wrong message, me taking that drink is not the most important thing in my life. Ever, and particularly at that moment. Uh, so I have to not just think, is it right? Is it wrong? I'm not to just think, is this something that I can do uh, with my liberty in Christ? Um, I, I can eat shrimp. But if I were having a dinner with a Jewish brother or sister, or friend of mine, uh, let's say I'm in Israel, I'm not going to eat shrimp there across the table from them. Because I know what it does to their spirit to see me eating something that's so non-kosher. I'm not going to invite my Jewish friends to a barbecue. I have a right to go to that barbecue and eat pork. Um, but I don't want to harm anybody by the exercise of my right. Uh, I have a right, by the way, we're in the midst of a pandemic. I have a right to not wear a mask. But the loving thing mandates I wear a mask. Uh, to make sure that I might not be a, a, a spreader of a virus. So when we're thinking about our actions, it's not just enough to say, is it right or wrong? 
Do you have the liberty to do it? Is it your right? But you have to factor in love for your neighbor. Uh, at one point, Paul's going to say in one of the pastoral epistles, we should not even have the appearance of evil. Because if we have the appearance of evil, even if it's not evil, if we have an appearance of evil, it could harm a brother and sister in Christ who might not understand. Um, I'm not going to go out and eat uh, a meal in a restaurant uh, with a friend of mine who happens to be a female, even though it may be, it would be completely platonic. I don't want anybody to get the wrong impression. And I don't want anyone, I don't want to put myself in a situation uh, that might lead me down the wrong path. I don't want even to give the appearance of evil. Um, so I have to make those decisions. Uh, almost action by action is if I choose to do this in this moment, in this place, is it loving for the people around me? Um, that's what Paul's saying here. There is nothing wrong with eating the meat offered idols. That's the best deal on meat in Corinth. Idols don't even really exist. Uh, there's only one God. Um, you know, you, you don't just never be able to eat with your next-door neighbor. You may want to go have a party with your next-door neighbor. Uh, having a barbecue with your next-door neighbor may be a way of building a bridge to your next-door neighbor. But you don't have to decide the whole time you're with that neighbor, uh, particularly a non-Christian neighbor, what you can do and what you can't do in that neighbor's presence. Uh, Paul is very serious about this love ethic for the Christian. Um, there's a lot more that needs to be said about this, and Paul actually, in one way or another, will continue this same conversation up, up, up into chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Christian ethical decision-making demands something of us. It's not easy. We have got to take on the mind of Christ, live out of the mind of Christ, stay prayed up, uh, immerse ourselves in Scripture, so love our neighbor that we can make as many right decisions for the sake of our neighbor uh, as, as we can. We have the right, as United Methodists, just another simple example, we have the right... Uh, because this was our history for most of the year, most of our history, uh, it changed during the prohibition movement just here in the United States, but only for about a hundred years were we mandated that we could not use real wine for communion. Most of our history, we were like all other Christian movements in the world, we used real wine for uh, communion in eighteen seventy six we decided to stop that because that was when the movement for prohibition started. Uh, about 1976, uh, we, we kind of changed back and said it could be a local option. Clergy can use real wine for communion. I have always chosen to not use real wine in communion services because I may have someone present who has an issue with the disease of alcoholism. And taking just a small sip of the real wine could be harmful for that person. Is it wrong for me to use wine? Certainly not. Is it wrong for me to drink wine occasionally? Certainly not. But everything has to come under the evaluation of the Christian concept of love. I would never use real wine in a worship service if that somehow could harm somebody sitting in the congregation. So uh, Christian ethical decision-making is not as easy as some people want it to be. 
Um, it, it, it takes some effort. And Paul's going to continue talking about Christian ethical decision-making uh, throughout uh, the next couple chapters of 1 Corinthians. So, so hang with me, stay with me, and we'll keep talking about uh, this topic um, from different perspectives. God bless you. Thank you for sharing this time.